This episode of Boob Sweat is brought to you by Mega Babe. If you didn't already know, I founded my personal care brand, Mega Babe, a few years ago to solve real problems with cute solutions. Even though I founded the brand, I am not qualified to do every single job, which is why I hire wonderful people like our customer service wizard, Britt. I've brought Britt on here to help answer a question. Hi, Britt. Hey, Katie. All right, Britt, go ahead. Bonnie said she's a super sweaty girl, and she asked how we can help with sweat that's showing through her clothes. Bonnie, 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 have I got some answers for you. We have several different solutions, starting with our bus dust, which is a hands-free way to apply our telc-free powder into your bra. You just literally pump it in there. It was the second product that we launched with. We also have our dust puff, which helps making apply powder to your body really easy because it helps with the mess. It also puts the powder on really evenly. Our dust puff is kind of awesome. And if you're not into powder, we actually have a cool product called Magic Powder. I know it says powder in the name, but it's actually a lotion. You apply it in a thin layer and it dries with a powder finish. I put it right under my boobs and sometimes under my butt cheeks. It's awesome. And don't forget, we also have body dust, which is the same great formula as our bus dust, but with a different applicator. So if you're not a fan of the pump, this comes with a sprinkle applicator so you can easily apply it anywhere that you experience sweat throughout the day. Britt, you're right. Body dust, of course, duh. Thank you so much for always knowing more than I do. And for a limited time, I'm offering Boob Sweat listeners 15% off your order at megababeauty.com with the code boobsweat15 at checkout. Now, on to the pod. Like to start with a content warning. In this episode, we will be talking in some detail about food and eating disorders. So if you are not in a place to listen right now, that's totally okay. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Katie Storino, and this is Boob Sweat. There are a lot of things out there that make us sweat, but don't worry, you're not alone. We are here to talk about it. In today's episode, we are talking about food and your relationship with it. What is a healthy relationship with food? What does that look like? We don't know. We're going to find out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out today. I would say that my relationship with food has has evolved over time from restriction to I learned today that I'm in a place called Diet Rock Bottom, which you will learn if you keep listening to this episode. But it just, I feel like we're inundated with messages about intuitive eating and um, all the different types and ways of eating. And it just starts to feel like noise to me. And I'm so scared to get back into diet culture that I kind of ignore all of it. And for the, I don't know if you guys know this, but for the benefit of the audience that follows me on the internet, I actually don't talk about food very much. I mean, I may post like an ice cream cone that I really love, but I don't talk about the way I eat. I'm never talking about a cleanse. I'm I'm never doing a cleanse. But I, I want it to be a place where you can come and not have to hear about food. I want it to be a place that is solely focused on body acceptance. So this episode was totally new for me. Um, and again, your your questions you submitted were really interesting and incredible. Maddie, who is my former assistant and current podcast producer, you did such a good job preparing this episode and finding Julie Duffy Dillon for us, who I'll introduce in a minute. 
Thank you. Yeah, no, this is a very interesting episode to work on just because I feel like you've mentioned this before, but like every person probably has a weird relationship with food. Like every person I've talked to, like I feel like sometimes with friends, you just like have those conversations. You're like, yeah, my food, my relationship with food is weird. Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah. And then it's like, oh, okay. Now it's everyone's on the same page. Well, more often than not, I find, I mean, at least my friends, people don't acknowledge a weird relationship with food. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's sometimes people either don't acknowledge it and you see it and you like try to say something and they're like, it's over their heads. Yes. Or like you say something and people are like, wait, you think about that too. And then mm. you like have like a 20 minute conversation about yeah. like, yeah, I do this. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, that. <laughs> yeah. Where are you in your relationship with food right now? I think for me, food has always been like, it's never about the food. It's always about like, quote unquote, control, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So like for a long time, like food was the only thing I could be like, I know, like I can control what I eat. Yeah. So I think I remember like the most free I felt with food was on a, when I was living like completely alone because you like I only had to worry about myself. I didn't have to worry about anyone else who yeah. I was eating dinner with, who I wasn't. Yeah. So it's nice. Like that was like a really nice era for me with the food. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for me, like food isn't about food in a way. It's about like a way to like be independent. I don't, I don't know. That's interesting. Well, I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> and I think that that's actually isn't that the I I'm not an expert on eating disorders, but I do know that I think control and outside factors. It's never oh, really yeah. about the pizza. And what we get into in this episode is we kind of talk about, for me, it is about the pizza. Yeah. I find that I eat over, I probably eat beyond, she called it eat beyond full. And mm -hmm. I definitely do eat beyond full, but not for the traditional reasons that um, exist in the world, like like the binge cycles. And I don't know. I thought it was, I, I'm, I, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this interview. Yeah. To talk about food, I brought on Julie Duffy Dillon, a registered dietitian, eating disorder expert, and PCOS expert. I love that we keep talking about PCOS. Once she learned about weight stigma and diet harm, she couldn't unsee it. Now Julie helps people confidently tackle health concerns moving forward without shame and blame. She's also the host of her podcast, Find Your Food Voice. Just a content warning again, in this episode, we are talking in some detail about food and eating disorders. So if you are not in a place to listen right now, totally okay. We'll see you next time. Let's get into the episode. Julie, we have so many listener questions about food and relationships with food, but I am going to selfishly start off this podcast by talking to you about myself. Okay, let's get to work. <laughs> so um, I would say that I don't know what my relationship with food is currently. I know, like, I would, I would say that I don't really know how to eat properly. And, and we have more questions about that. But um, my journey has been one of, like, restriction and um, going between, like, eating whatever I want and then like punishing myself for it. Um, also, never really knowing if I have an eating disorder. I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. I don't know if I have a healthy relationship with food because I really don't know what that means. And 
all I did know is that I wanted to stop um, going on that cycle of like, I can only eat this and this week I'm only eating this and, and like really focusing so much on food. And I just started to eat what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I gained, I gained about 75 pounds during that process. And um, now I'm at a point where I'm like, you know what? I don't know that I need like the extra 75 pounds on my frame, but I, I also don't want to like go into the cycle of weight watchers or, oh, excuse me, weight, what's it called? Like weight health. I don't, like, I think it's just WW. I don't there know. There you go. I can't. WW. I didn't want to go into like this, like that kind of cycle. So I'm just kind of stuck in this place of like, I know I won't go back to diet culture, but I also don't really know how to have a, like a, like what a normal non-dieting relationship is mm-hmm. with food. Um, so that's been my journey and that's where I am right now. And that's why I'm so excited about this episode. Yeah. Well, can I share some thoughts? Please. <laughs> Cause well, first of all, I'm sorry that you're in this, this space of exhaustion and oh. tried everything. Yeah. There is a name for what you're experiencing. It's called diet rock bottom where wow. you've like done all the diets and that's the only way, you know, forward, but you also know you can't do another one. Like they, ha- yeah. they don't work. But no. what what else do you do instead? So like what and you mentioned the word proper. Like how do I properly feed myself? Yeah. Like yeah, what am I supposed is- to be eat? Like I know I'm supposed to be eating vegetable. Like I know it's like you know you're supposed to be eating these good powerful foods, but I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. This is a time that can be really tricky if you're trying to continue to reject diets. Yes. And, you know, there's a part of you that knows, like there's this wisdom that's like, I have enough data. Katie, we've done enough diets. Yeah. They're not going to work for me. And yet just can be stuck in like noticing the world around us telling us, yeah, we have to eat these things. We have to eat enough vegetables. We have to be good. And how to actually just make sense of all of that. And this is a place where whenever I was working one-on-one with clients where we would talk a lot about, this is the time of like healing your relationship with food. And so repairing your relationship with food, focusing on that may look like the opposite of what the world tells us to do with food. It may be that you need to enjoy the pleasure from food more, eat past fullness, eat foods that have these like bad connotations to them in order to recover it. And that is something that is really important for health, but it's just well, per- personally, I think I've been doing that for five years. Yeah. It takes time for sure. Yeah. Five years is not like an, an abnormal length of time. Really? Yeah. Well, cause yeah. it sounds like you dieted for a long time, yes. more than five years. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I feel that's where I feel like I've, I've been at, like, I've just been like, just experiencing food without trying to not have any labels on it. Mm-hmm. But also I'm like, okay, I don't, I, I feel like I need to get some sort of program for myself. Mm, Yeah. For life. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of, Ooh, I wish I had like a sheet of paper that would just tell me what to do now. (laughs) 
<laughs> kind of, yeah. That's where WW wants you to go back to them. You know, oh, they, yeah. you're right. Mm-hmm. They're like the solution to that kind of craving for like a black and white answer to something that is so gray, so ambiguous and individual. Like this is an individual thing for you and it's needs to take its time to like tend to. And here's the thing that just really sucks about all of it is like, you're trying to do this in a world that hasn't recovered from its own eating disorder yet. Uh huh. So you're not like, you're like going out into the world and being forced to have to like live along other people and cultures that are just like thinner is better. This is the good way to yes. eat. And so how can you expect to every day, like move forward with your own repair work when you keep going back into the stuff that's like diet culture constantly? Well, how do I know if I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder? How do you know if you have an eating disorder or do most people just have disordered eating? I haven't met many people who don't have disordered eating because like dieting is disordered eating to me, but it's Mm -hmm. also considered normal eating for like our culture. It so is. Yeah. And you know, an eating disorder diagnosis may surprise you. Like it's more common than you would think. And I've lost count of the people I've talked to who came to me in this place of diet rock bottom. And as we go through, went through their diet history, finding oh no, you definitely had an eating disorder at Mm. many times throughout your life. And you probably have a gut instinct. Like if you've read, like read the diagnostic criteria for eating disorders being like, "Mm, yeah, I did some of those at least. I have not read that. Okay. Having a a preoccupation with food for most of the day and um, restricting yourself from an amount of food, sometimes compensating. um, And sometimes compensating can be just exercising more because you felt like you ate too much or so not that's eating not normal day. No, that's part of the criteria. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. See, that's like, like, yeah, most people probably can check some yeah. of those boxes. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is eye opening for me because I've always, I've never put myself in the camp of eating disorder because I assumed it was more extreme. Yeah. And that's actually like the big lie that every single person that I've ever talked to with an eating disorder, like people I was working with one-on-one for years who we were already diagnosed with an eating disorder, they're also saying the same thing. Really? Yes. Like every person I've ever worked with an eating disorder has been like, are you sure? Like (laughs) me. Because that's just too extreme. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the big, the big lie with them. And, you know, for, since I'm talking to you, like um, to like, think about like, what would it be like if you have had an eating disorder? Like, how would that impact this, like, repair work that you're doing? I guess it would allow me to be kinder to myself about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm pretty kind with my body. Um, yes. But I would say that I am probably still a little judgmental about my food choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, why, you know, like, I'm sure I should be doing, like, even the peanut butter, um, uh, muffin I ate this morning. I'm like, oh, should I be eating? Uh, should I be eating like an Ezekiel English muffin, or is that a carb I'm supposed to stay away from? Mm-hmm. So that thought passed through my brain this morning. Yeah. Should I put milk in my coffee, or is that going to make me bloated? Mm-hmm. Like it's like these. It's like I guess just from today, those are two instances of um like food thought processes that are probably not ideal. Yeah. Yeah, it's like your brain is still worried that you could restrict 
Yes. That's part of why it happens is like the the threat of restriction can make our our brain preoccupied with food. Wow. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Sorry to have my mind blown this early <laughs> in the morning. But that's that's <laughs> really for this. <laughs> that's really interesting. Cause I do I do. I mean, I, I understand that we are on a live podcast and not in an actual therapy appointment together <laughs> right now. But I um I am always thinking about like, what am I gonna have for lunch? What am I gonna have for this? Like, oh, okay, this. Like, I'm always planning for food, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not because I cook, yeah, yeah, because I want to like know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah, and it it can take many years, especially living in the world we live in, to get to a place where the threat of restriction goes away. And I heard you kind of yearning for like, when am I gonna like eat more vegetables and stuff? For many people, there's this time where there just isn't going to be a lot of variety of foods Mm. and um, that variety comes in and that kind of like, I think how we're told healthy eating looks like, Mm -hmm. maybe not including that peanut butter muffin. I don't know. That sounds really good though. Um, (laughs) It's delicious. Um, And that starts to happen though, as the threat of restriction starts to go away and if we're asking like, when am I going to start eating healthy? That's usually means that that work hasn't, it hasn't finished yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. I will leave my own personal journey here and just say, <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think my, my headline is that I've always been into ice cream and vegetables. I love vegetables. I love dessert and um, I'm anemic and I apparently am still working through letting go of the restriction work that I did for so many years. So yeah, yeah. very interesting. Thanks okay. for sharing your story though. No, thank you for talking with me about it. I, I have, I, again, we have so many questions from people on Instagram. All right. So this one's kind of, this one's kind of similar. Can a bad relationship with food technically be considered an eating disorder? Hmm. It's so hard to answer that because of how our world is because having a relationship with food that has good or bad or dieting for many people, especially people who are living in the margins, people who are in higher weight bodies. Yeah. That's how they access a lot of life is by practicing this way. And so for them, that is what they needed to do to move forward. But um, having a relationship with food that is with like food preoccupation, when we're thinking about food all the time, it is something that we've been conditioned to do and also can be an eating disorder. So it's probably one of those things that it can be both. So so what does a normal relationship with food even look like? Normal and that like what is not actually normal right now. <laughs> you know, somebody who's relying on their body. It and some people use the word um non-diet or the phrase intuitive eating it's relying on our hunger and fullness cues as much as we can. You know, that's not something that every person can connect with, but as much as you can connecting with hunger and fullness and eating foods that you have access to and an amount that is satisfying and thinking about food, you know, before you're eating, as you're getting hungry and maybe when you're preparing your like grocery list or like deciding when you're going to get the store or what you're going to pick out on the menu. But then having hours and hours of time every day, many times throughout the day where you don't think about food. And that's how I would define normal eating. 
is having mm-hmm. time and space where you're not thinking about it. Wow. And then you're not judging your character based on what you choose to eat and understanding that food and our relationship with food is really complex. Um, and how we relate to it also is important for how we're going to be relating to other people and, you know, judging another person based on what they're eating and, and how their body looks. So you, you don't consider intuitive eating a diet. Well, I mean, the way that it is uh, framed and and by the people who wrote the book, no, but I I can appreciate how a lot of people have misinterpreted it to be a diet, um, kind of like a hunger fullness type diet intuitive eating to in the way that I interpret it and the way that I help clients with it is a healing modality to help you reclaim your, your normal relationship with food and help you to do that healing work from being at diet rock bottom to figuring out like, how do you want to relate to food and how do you want to navigate this? And then if you are interacting with other humans, maybe taking care of other people, how you want to impact them as well mm. in their relationship with food. Mm. So I, I have a question. Last night, I didn't, I wasn't hungry for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, like, there was no dinner prepared for me. And um, I just kind of went on with the night and I never ate dinner. And I n- was never hungry. That's not a typical thing for me. But is mm-hmm. that is that intuitive eating where I like, didn't eat because I wasn't hungry? Yeah. And especially if it's in a place. It never happened before. I mean, it's like, it's like one time a month. It can happen. Yeah, exactly. Like one time a month, we may find like, wow, I'm actually not hungry for this meal. And I typically am really hungry for it. And I think if it comes from a place too of curiosity and compassion and like totally not being judgmental about it, that's like when I, that's when you're doing good, like repair work in this, in this space is like wow. noticing, oh, this is different today. I wonder what's making it different. And also the flip side, because you know, not wanting to eat may feel easier than the opposite of like, wow, I just ate dinner two hours ago and I'm starving. Oh no, second dinner. I'm especially like when my um when we like start ramping up into my period. So basically two weeks a month, I mm-hmm. like think I'm eating like six meals a day because yeah. I like need I'm like starving. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting how hormones play into it too. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is probably hard to answer, but and also a lot of these are very general. And if there's mm-hmm. if there's no like you're like it's not really an answer. So just let me know. But sure. Um, how do you shift from counting everything, points, calories, tracking it all, to just being able to have what you want and move on? I'm tired of thinking about food all the time. Mm. Oh my gosh, this person who wrote this question, I want to like. It's like a hard space to be in, to be counting. I feel like that's every person. I feel like every person feels like this though. Well, I want to give everyone a big consensual hug. (laughs) (laughs) That is so exhausting. Like, how are you getting shit done if you're thinking about food that much? Mm -hmm. And I mean, this world right now, there's a lot of shitty things going on. We like need the brain space to take care of it, right? Do we ever? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there's not a like a switch you can just move that'll make um, you go from counting everything to counting nothing. And it starts with being really uncomfortable with one or two of those things that you're counting. And it may be as small as picking a snack time where you eat something and you don't count it at all. 
and notice how exhausting that is. Notice how much anxiety comes from whatever your brain will react to uh, or how it will react to this and get used to that discomfort. There's a lot of practice that needs to happen basically. And also like a lot of compassion that this is hard because again, you're doing this and we don't have models in the world doing this for the most part. So however you can be around other people who are quote unquote normal eaters, yeah. you know, people who are doing this type of work or who have already done it is one thing that would really help be like a catalyst for you to move from counting everything to counting less things to counting very little things to yeah. counting nothing. So an- another question, why do I hide wrappers in the trash when it's just me in the house? Ooh. Wow. <sighs> yes. We want to hide. We want to protect our brain from the shame that comes from mm, food choices. Shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what a like interesting thing to notice in the moment. Why am I hiding this in my own space where no one else sees it? You know, like even in that moment, calling that out, not that you have to change it, but just even noticing like, I'm ashamed of a behavior that no one else is going to see. Yeah. That's how powerful this is. And, you know, Katie, you were describing like wanting to move away from diet rock bottom and uh, imagine people who submitted these questions have like been exploring that and just being so like impatient with like how long it's taking. I mean, that's why, like shame. That's why I said, I said, I said five years to you and you were like, Mm -hmm. yeah, and what? Like like, (laughs) not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that is, I, so I wrote a book called Body Talk and in it, I, I talk about taking your brain space back from calorie counting. Nice. And it's interesting because this is kind of the journey of, I know I, I personally, I know I've been in calorie counting land. I know I'm out of calorie counting land. And this is just, this is interesting to see what's next. I, I also mm-hmm. want to say that I don't talk about food or, or like diet health or, um, I talk about diet culture. But I don't, I don't talk about like the way I eat at all on my, my platform because I know that you can get eating information so many other places. And I, I've always just wanted it to be a safe space where people can come and not hear about like the thing I'm doing. Yeah. Or like the, like this is, this is like how I prepare my healthy meal or my unhealthy meal or, or even the word healthy food. Like, I've, I just, I guess maybe, maybe I've done that for me now that we're really getting into it. Maybe, but it's also providing something to to someone who's listening to you or watching what you're doing on Instagram because you're connecting with people outside of food, which yes. is really yes. like what we don't have right now, especially I shouldn't say connecting outside of food because food is a great connector, but connecting outside of dieting and yes. diet culture. Yes, it's like body. I I I think I practice body acceptance without the um, food piece because like the food piece is so complicated, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's like I've learned to accept my body while not yet being, I guess, recovered from the the what what I've put my body through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. What a cool thing too to give people who are in different places in that um, yeah. with their food piece that. Um, some people have told me what helped them to recover from dieting is watching other people who look like them. Yeah. Just being. 
Yes. Not necessarily doing anything like magical, like rocket science, but just being and existing and daring to exist without talking about dieting. Wow. So thanks. Yeah. (laughs) I've got an email from Elisa. I have a question. After years of disordered eating on a constant and aggressive binge and restrict cycle, I've finally given myself permission to eat whatever I want. I don't think I could physically restrict if I wanted to, and I don't even have the desire to try. However, I haven't been able to shake the mental restriction, thinking that things I'm eating are good or bad and beating myself up for eating bad foods. How do I gain more mental neutrality towards food? Thank you. Mm. That question is so, I mean, it reminds me of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. And so much of recovering from like the binge restrict cycle, the first step is not restricting like this person described, you know, and getting to that place of like, oh my gosh, I definitely could never diet again. And then many people do continue to binge or eating past fullness and, or feel out of control with food. The next step I always encourage people to do is allow themselves to have permission to do that because that's where a lot of the repair work is and noticing what messages come up. And, um, you know, a lot of people in the um, anti-diet space talk about like a pendulum with food, you know, the more we restrict, the more um, binging happens. And there are certain things that pull that pendulum towards restriction. There's certain messages that someone may have about food and really noticing them. And they may be activated by certain people, certain situations, or, you know, just trying to find clothes that fit, you know, certain things may pull that kind of mental restriction Mm -hmm. to be activated. And when we notice those keeping track of them, I mean, this is where like some hard nitty gritty work needs to be processed. But as we write down what those thoughts are, um, rewriting what you want them to be. And each time the the pull to restrict happens with that kind of message, like verbalizing or however you can, letting your brain know that, no, this is actually um, that, you know, wh- however you want to rewrite that. I'm trying to think of an example that would be, be one. Maybe if someone is flying on an airplane and really uncomfortable in the seat and just the thought of um, returning on their flight home is um, leading them to saying, I need to, I need to eat less. Mm. And instead mm-hmm. um, having a, a statement of, you know what, the world is not accommodating me. The world needs to be fixed. I don't need to be fixed. You know, something like that, you know, yeah. and it's not something that's magical. You got to keep repeating yeah. it, repeating it and repeating That's it. like my mindset. That's great. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. I know I keep returning to me. I'm sorry that I am just keep making this my own session, but thank you. That is, that's good to know. And that's great advice. Well, thanks. Well, you know, I definitely feel really grateful that I've had clients that have shared their experiences with me to give me some of those examples. So thank you. Okay. More IG questions. Now these are all about emotional eating. Cool. Um, I, I would love to start off this by asking what is a binge? What, Mm-hmm. I, I've seen binges in movies. Now I can't remember the names or what the movies were, but like where they go and buy like a a large amount of food and then they have this whole ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm like, what is, is that the only binge or what does binging look like? This is such an important question. 
It's so important. I don't know the answer at all. Yeah. Yeah. And a binge as a, as a dietitian who specializes in eating disorders, if I had to judge a binge, it would be eating a sheet cake all at once or going down a road that has a bunch of fast food restaurants, getting a couple orders and sitting in your car, eating them in private. Now, many people that I've worked with have eaten amount of food. I think the way the, the diagnostic criteria describes it is an amount of food that's socially unacceptable in one sitting. Which socially is so, unacceptable. But yeah. like, that's just like, what the, what the hell? Um, yeah. Who... I know who's writing these things and I just don't agree with how they write them. Um, because many people will talk about eating like a bag of Doritos and feeling the same way as people who would eat a whole sheet cake. Yeah. And I really think that's the big thing is how are you experiencing it? Like, are you feeling out of control from it? Are you feeling disconnected? Are you um, feeling ashamed of it, eating it in private? Because that's really what's most important. Mm. And that's the part that I wish I could kind of pluck out, <laughs> like the shame piece. Yeah. Um, and is it a binge or is it not? I mean, in the end, it may not be that important for you to know. Oh. Yeah. I mean, if, if how you're feeling about your eating experience is to me the most important. So it's like you could eat a sheet cake and if you're fine with it. it, it for example, I like I can take down a pint of ice cream. It's mm-hmm. like like nothing. It's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. nothing. And then mm-hmm. I and it's not even like I'm done feeling like I had dessert. Mm-hmm. So um, and I don't register that as a binge mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's okay. Why wouldn't it be okay? I think it's okay. This is what I'm saying. It's the social, it's the socially acceptable part of it where I'm like, yeah. some people are like, they have a pint of ice cream in their refrigerator for a month. And I'm like, uh, what? I don't even know what that is like. But Never you love ice cream. Like. It's like one of your I favorite love, things. I know, Julie. I know. <laughs> I do love ice cream. Is there another dessert that if you had like oodles of it, like in your house that you would care less? Yeah, like all other desserts. Like If I had like a cake on my counter right now, I would probably like take bites of it like every hour because it's there and I know it's there and I'm mm-hmm. like excited about it. Um, But no, like. My dad makes cookies and I'll eat like 12 cookies at once, but I don't feel like, I don't feel like out of control about it mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. That's, that's great. Is that okay? I, mean, I can judge it. Yeah. 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 That's like, that, that is something that like you enjoyed it. You like, it was an eating experience. It wasn't a part of your morality and your character. No. Like, that, yeah, it served its purpose. Okay, this is interesting because I've always like when people talk about like, oh, I'm an emotional eater, I'm a binger, I'm like, is that what I'm doing? Like when I like I'm like, oh, it's ice cream night, like let's have a Sunday. Like is this a binge? Is this what emotional eating is? Um so what is emotional eating? I know emotional eating is such an interesting topic because emotional eating is definitely poo-pooed, right? It's like this yes. super bad thing yes. you shouldn't be doing. And Honestly, I mean, emotional eating, how I would define it as eating in response to emotions instead of hunger or continuing to eat past fullness because of an emotion. And can we really honestly say that it's abnormal to like go to a wedding or a funeral and not eat when you're not hungry? Like those are extreme examples, Hmm. but like we all eat for emotions and 
every person on the planet is going to eat for our emotions. Like emotional eating is normal eating. Like abstaining from emotional eating doesn't seem like something humans are going to be doing. Food has connected us and done more than just fuel us for as long as we've existed. So like, um, to think that we can't, we shouldn't do it, I think is setting us up to fail and to feel a lot of shame when we do it. Um, I'm all about how can we pluck out that shame? And that's one of them. Like emotional eating is normal. And when you're talking about having the cookies your dad made or having the ice cream, you know, I'm curious about like what's going on in that moment. You know, is there, is it special? Nothing. And it may be even like the emotion of checking out of like, I just want to like veg for a little bit. Oh, that can even just be a tool to help with that. Maybe it's the checking out. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and it takes some really some curiosity and in the intuitive eating circles, they talk about being your own food anthropologist, you know, just like really being curious about why you're making food decisions and then in a very non-judgmental way. And so if someone is emotionally eating, trying really hard first to be okay with emotionally eating and then second to be curious why you're doing it and not removing it from your toolbox for coping with life Hmm. and just maybe you want to find other things to add to it. Fantastic. Um, and for a lot of people, emotional eating or maybe even binge eating is how they got through trauma. Why would I want to take that away? That's like a really cool thing to have, you know? So you may find though that it stops working and you want to have other things or yeah, you just want to have other ways to, to cope with the hard shit of life. So that's, that's the coping is it's like you're, you're in a particularly emotional time and you have, and you are not hungry and you are like in the kitchen pulling stuff out of the cabinets. Yeah. I mean, it could be so many different things for different people. Um, but, but yeah, that's like a really normal part of we need food and sometimes it's going to be outside of fuel. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's time we just like stop shaming it. It is yeah. pretty normal. God, I love all this. I love the concept of plucking the shame out of it. This is Let's do you that. are just I'm I'm jiving with you. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, this is an email from Ashley. I've been dieting since I was 12 or so, no matter what size I've been. Despite this, I've gained a lot of weight in my 30s. And after years of food and calorie counting with minimal results, I decided to let it all go. I'm focusing on balanced meals that make me feel good, eating when I'm hungry and no longer restricting things like carbs. I feel so much happier mentally. Um, This is interesting. I know a number on the scale does not determine a person's health. I know that I'm a healthier person when I'm not so overweight because I'm short and carrying extra weight really affects me physically. I don't need to be skinny and she's strong. She just legitimately wants to be healthy inside and out. So mm-hmm. here's my question. How do I balance food freedom with doing what's best for my physical health? This is kind of what I was asking you earlier. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an important part to to really explore. And the way that we've been taught about food and dieting is basically if we're not dieting, then we're letting ourselves go or we're not caring yes. about health. And why is it mutually exclusive? Like, why can't we explore this like repairing experience and like um, really food freedom is what this person said. Like, why can't we continue on our path of food freedom and also add health to that? There's ways to do that without 
focusing on the scale. And I would also say too, so much of the harm that happens to our body that we often will say it's because of weight or how we eat, um, whether it's um, high cholesterol or high triglycerides or diabetes. Um, I work with a lot of people with polycystic ovary syndrome. So people talk a lot about insulin in there. All of those things that people often say, you need to cut out carbs or you need to focus on weight loss because of these things that you could experience. We now know that dieting causes those things to worsen. And so by you, this person writing this letter, um, pursuing food freedom, you're actually like pursuing health at the same time. Mm. It's just, it's the long game instead of the short game. Yeah. It's the long game. Mm-hmm. Wow. And like, I, again, bring it back to me because I'm selfish. Um, <laughs> like I don't have super high cholesterol. I don't have diabetes. I don't have, I don't really have anything medically wrong with me. Knock on wood. I would say the like the things that I want to change. I think, I think what I'm actually looking to change is like a strength conversation. Mm-hmm. Like I, I talk about 75 pounds on my body, but what I really mean is that like, I have bad sciatic nerve pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I, I'm really not strong anymore. And so maybe I need to be exploring more into getting like physically strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were told our bodies are going to change throughout time? Yeah. And this is how you take care of your body as it changes. For those of us who continue to live on into old age, we're going to gain weight until we're about 70. Um, That's just part of surviving to 70 is like, you're going to gain weight. It's a, a really like, it's important to do that. And that's not something that people talk a lot about. Because, oh my gosh, if we let people gain weight, what? That's that's just yeah. not something that people want to have permission for. But what we know is that people, as they get older, it's just something we've always done as humans as we've gained weight. And what if instead of telling people, well, your back pain is because of the weight gain, what if instead we were taught, oh, when you start to get back pain because of your body changing, this is the type of physical therapy you need. Um, or if you get joint pain because of your body change, these are the exercises you can do to help continue to access walking, you know, things like that. Um, People often talk about like skin stuff with like folds in their body. What if we were taught, oh, if you have skin folds, this is how you take care of your skin to prevent infection. You know, why is this not normal? It would be so different. I think people would access healthcare more and there would be so much less disease. There would be, um, I don't know. We'd get a lot more shit done. Why aren't you the president? We'd be distracted. <laughs> What'd you say? Why aren't you the president? <laughs> you don't want me to be president. <laughs> I, I just like, I don't know. I, I just feel like this messaging should be shouted from a, yeah. a mountaintop. And hopefully, hopefully I can help continue to get this messaging out there. I just think that that's so interesting. Your body is going to change over time. That's cool. And like, here's what you do if you're experiencing mm-hmm. something like this. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, this is not something that I invented. That liberation folks have been talking about this since the 1960s, that we really need to move to this. Can you talk about fat liberation? Sure. What do you want to know? I don't know anything about it. Well, fat liberation, from how I understand it, started in the 1960s. Um, Black, queer, 
um, women got together who were wanting to really like access the world. Um, they were seeing how it wasn't right, how people of size were discriminated against and wanted to change things. And over time, that's evolved into different types of fat liberation kind of concepts. That's how um, health at every size kind of came out of that. Mm. Intuitive eating came out of that. And it's been something that people have been talking about for, what is that? 50, 60 years? I don't know. That's why I can't be president. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's so interesting because that has just remained kind of a sub conversation versus going into the mainstream. Like diet culture has such a hold on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and has for decades and we, we can't seem to shake it. And I just wonder, I wonder if it's harder to sell product with like the fat liberation conversation. Yeah. Because if we, dieting is sexy, Yeah, you know, it's, it's a model that has been able to withstand like typical kind of, uh, marketing and and mm-hmm. and businesses where you know if a product doesn't work usually people don't buy it again but somehow dieting has been able to withstand that kind of yes. notion and make it they've been like gaslighting us basically yes and it's like and what, the 1860s or something they, so. they put on a they put on a different outfit and you're like oh if this isn't a diet and it's like noom um the weight loss app noom Mm-hmm. Um, it is a weight loss app. It is a diet. It is like, like it's still the same thing. Oh, it, it's such an old diet too. The Noom. one that they're using is like from the 1980s. No, that we used to teach kids how to restrict. This no. is the model that they're using. It's like been around so for so long, and they put some new packaging on it. Yeah, and then also made it seem like, oh, it's your psychology. Yes, you know, yeah. like. You're just stupid, basically, yeah. is how I hear that. <laughs> um, and so let me show you how to do this better. And it really, it's really messed up because of, you know, fat liberationists have been able to help me understand how diet culture has its roots in racism. And um, I mean, it's, that's why it's so powerful is because it's rooted in some really dark and well-invested you know, wow. areas. So um, it's going to take a lot to be able to really change things. And, and honestly, I think you talking about it and spreading the word is how it happens. It's like the more people become aware, the more we can all join forces to fuck shit up. <laughs> fuck shit up indeed. Um, we have a call from Amy, a voicemail. Ooh, fun. Will you guys please call in with voicemails? I just, I, Voicemails are our favorite thing. So please call in when we're posting about them on my stories. Maddie? Hi, Katie. My name is Amy. I'm 37 years old, and I've developed some really unhealthy habits um, around eating since I was in college. My issue is that with the Health at Every Size movement, I have weight-related injuries um, specific to my feet and ankles, um, I also have uh, obesity-related diseases that run in my family. And my question is, how do we have the Hayes movement incorporate weight loss as the optimal outcome with using healthy habits? The last psychiatrist I actually spoke with told me that 
um, the only place I could go to find help with weight loss would be at a bariatric doctor's office, office which, frankly, I found to be pretty offensive. I hope you can uh, help me with my question. Thank you. So how can we incorporate health at every size to also include weight loss? Is I think so. Question? Yes. Yeah. But you just said, you said she's got she's got some diseases that mm-hmm. are genetic and mm-hmm. weight related and she's got some joint issues that are weight related mm-hmm. and the what you just said a few minutes ago about like what if we just said here are some things you need to do to like relieve this yeah. pain. Well, and here's the thing. We don't know of any condition that is only weight related. There are zero diseases, joint issues that happen just because of weight. Like thin people experience every, everything that higher weight people experience. And even if we could say this knee pain was caused by your weight gain, even if that was like 100% causation, because there's only correlation at this point, we don't have that kind of data. But if we did, what intervention could I help her use that wouldn't be harmful? Hmm. And I say that because diet recommendations are very easy to access. Doctors and other healthcare providers will just flippantly say, you know, just pick a diet to do to help lose weight. Yeah. Yet what we know to be true is that um, dieting predicts eating disorders. Binge eating disorder on average takes seven to 14 years to recover from. Wow. So there's that. We also know that short term, yeah, like it would relieve joint pain, any diet. It would lower insulin, prevent diabetes, all those things that this person um, I'm assuming is writing about. But when we look at research a year out, weight regain is starting to happen. Labs are starting to go back to where they were before. And then when we look at research that's two to five years after someone starts a diet, whether they continue it or not, at this point with every diet we have, at the two to five year mark, people have regained the weight and a third to two thirds of people have regained more than they lost to begin with. And that same time span, what has been found is really, really interesting is that's where the causational data has been able to be connected to dieting, causing higher blood sugar, dieting, causing more inflammation, dieting, causing higher insulin levels is And we don't have that kind of data when it comes to like weight loss. Hmm. We only have correlational data. And, you know, this may be boring to some people, but like, that's really important to someone like me as like a scientist, scientist practitioner of like, oh, correlational data is just a relationship. Yeah. And causational is like, oh, that causes the bad things, you know? And so maybe even if there was a condition that we had and, you know, something with health at every size, that data that we have is. People who are at the um, statistical extremes of weight, um, weight can cause harm. Like that's that's something that, um, you know, someone who's at the very extreme BMI, either end, health data exists to show that that is harmful. And at the same time, someone at the statistical extreme of higher weight, we don't have an intervention yet that shows like, hey, this will actually help you. And most people lose weight without causing long-term damage. So since we don't have that yet, why are we pushing weight loss until we have it? And so we need to keep studying different diets then, I guess, 
Um, and in the meantime, we can help people promote health by adding things into their life and also removing the stigma of being in a higher weight body. What about um, the the bariatric of it all? Doesn't I believe doesn't the government pay for bariatric surgery? Oh my if you gosh! Qualify? Is that true? I don't I don't know for certain, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, bariatric surgery is promoted as the end all be all. Like this is the thing that's going to fix it all. I had a guy I was dating suggest I get bariatric surgery when I was I, I was. Seven, 75, 80 pounds, maybe more lighter than I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of promoted as the thing that will change it all. Yes. And you know, you're taking a perfectly healthy organ. Yes. And manipulating it, making it malabsorb and amputating it. Yes. And it's a perfectly healthy organ. And what we know, like the data is so hard to find, long-term data on stomach amputation surgeries, which I like to call them that. Marilyn Wan taught me that. <laughs> stomach amputation sounds much more serious and more along the lines of what it is. It actually is. Marilyn yeah. Wan is the one who taught me that phrase. So I okay. need to credit her on that. But only 20% of people who do the surgery long-term have been able to maintain the weight loss. No. And those who maintain the the rate of substance abuse and anorexia is incredibly high. The quality of life, really poor. Increased access though, like people are going to treat you a lot differently. Yeah. And so I, you know, there's many people that I've worked with as clients who have done this surgery. There's people I'm friends with who've done the surgery. And, you know, I never would be against a person who chooses that. I'm just against the industry that's pushing it. Mm -hmm. And I wish we had another way to help people besides again, yeah, amputating this perfectly healthy organ. It's almost like pulling the ripcord because you don't know what else to do or where else to turn. Yeah. 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 And it's a lifelong thing. It's not, it's not an easy way to manage the rest of your life. I worked in um, bariatric surgery as a dietitian for six months. Wow. And that is what made me really appreciate how fucked up our world is with its anti-fat bias. Like the amount of misery people were willing to experience just to like be able to exist. It, it was horrifying to me. You know, I had, um, a gentleman come up to me and say, and he had tears in his eyes and he said that he, he saw me speak at this thing and he was like, I had, um, gastric bypass. Is that the same thing as bariatric surgery? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I had the surgery and I just want to say like, I wish I had seen you or, or heard of this kind of messaging before I had the surgery because I've, I'm, I'm thin now, but I'm very unhappy. Yeah. And, um, I just thought it was, it was like very interesting to see because that is certainly not what we're sold on. Yeah. Yeah. What if we could help you access joy, pleasure in your current body? Would you still feel the need to do that mm-hmm. to amputate this part of your body? Amputate. Yeah. Yeah. And we got to say what it is, right? Yeah. No, I like that. <laughs> I really like because it, because bariat or like it, it makes it sound like some sort of glamorous, um, like I'm getting a nose job or like, yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's like yeah. I'm getting a boob job. And yes. no, yeah, no, it's different. <laughs> You're not adding anything. You're just yeah. taking out a big chunk of your intestine. 
Well, I love watching my 600 pound life. Um, mm-hmm. It's a show that I, I don't, in, I, it's just something I, in, I watch and I don't mm-hmm. know why it's like the only piece of reality that I, that I watch. And I just find it so interesting and so sad. Yeah. And I, you know, I think about people who may be on that show when I talk about the statistical extremes, you know, and, yeah. and I know that working with people in a similar place that the way they're existing, the world is not accessible to them. No. And yet at the same time, yeah, we don't have an intervention that yeah. we know that doesn't have this risk. And so we need to find a way to help people to like access what they need and to feel like at home in their body and feel safe there. I want to pivot to the way that um, outside, like the the people in our lives actually impact us with their own language. So do you have advice for people? This is an Instagram question. Um, how do you handle it when friends are always like, I'm dieting um, right now, or I'm losing weight for the wedding, or I've got to lose my baby weight? How are we supposed to handle those types of comments coming at us? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I can't answer this question without acknowledging like the obvious, like, I'm, I exist in a thin body. So me having a response to someone with that question is going to be much different than someone Mm. in a higher weight body. Um, The risk is not the same. So, you know, I can't ignore that, but I think it's going to really depend on what you, you know, there may be times in your life where you can say something and there's going to be times in your life when you can't. And I hope either one feels equal to you. And, um, just know when people make those comments, especially if you live in a body that is larger than the body, than the world tells you is, is acceptable. Those are comments that are microaggressions that they, they hurt for a reason. You know, they're, they're pointing out things about your body that the world doesn't accept. And so, um, I know a lot of people that choose to do a lot of silent boundaries in those moments where they change the subject mm-hmm. or walk away. Mm-hmm. And use those. And those are fabulous. Um, I was talking to um, Elizabeth Armstrong. She's the PCOS therapist on Instagram. I was talking to her one time and she had taught me that we can only have so many people in our life who are, we are constantly educating on Mm. our boundaries, you know? And, and so you can sometimes have one, two, maybe three people in your life who you are constantly having to remind, Hey, talking about food in that way hurts me or talking about other people's bodies in that way hurts me. And you know, you may find after two or three people, everybody else, you just have to do those silent boundaries or just walk away or, um, decide, yeah, how are you going to handle it? And you may have the ability to just cut people out and you may not, you know, of course it just depends on how that fits for you. But yeah, I say that because I know people will tell me that they feel really ashamed that they can't always speak up or they feel like a coward if they're not speaking up. And I just don't think it's that simple. I, yeah, I think putting yourself through the, um, through the, having to engage with people and like fight them on things that's, that's draining for you too. So it's a choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Julie, do you have advice on, on how to find, is a nutritionist the term that I'm looking for here? It depends on what state of the United States you're in, <laughs> but a registered dietitian is someone who has the same training as me. 
Okay. Um, and how can you find one? Well, you know, a Google search will often help you find a registered dietitian. And I also will say that to become a dietitian, you have to withstand a lot of anti-fat bias, a lot of racism, mm-hmm. a lot of ableism, and and you have to have financial access. I mean, honestly, it's 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 a profession that is really just for privileged people. Oh. And so you may find that you don't connect with a registered dietitian. Okay. If you're not white, if you're in a fat body, you may just not find it a safe place and that's okay. And so there's also people who are health coaches that may be able to help. There are people with lived experience that may be able to help. And so even just researching, I, I think finding um, in a Google search, like weight inclusive provider mm, and you. see what pops up. Um, certainly there's a many registered dietitians who are weight inclusive providers and they're starting to be more with different identities. Um, which, um, if you go to Whitney Trotter's website, she has a whole BIPOC, um, not search engine, but she has like a list of people. Okay. 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 (laughs) I'm looking for the fancy word that Whitney used, but that's one that is really helpful. Um, those are all people that, um, would also be able to provide that type of care. Great. And Mm -hmm. Julie, where can people find you? So I have a podcast too. It's called find your food voice. And, um, you can check me out there. And my website is julieduffydillon.com. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This was such a fun conversation. I thought it was really interesting. I'm so glad. (laughs) That's it for this episode of Boob Sweat. I want to thank Julie for coming on. And you can find her on Instagram at foodvoicerd or julieduffydillon.com. And you can listen to her podcast, Find Your Food Voice Podcast, wherever you listen to the pods. Have a question or comment? Call us on our hotline, 201-701-1575, and you could be featured on the pod. Or email us at boobsweatproductions at gmail.com. If you like the show, please, please, please rate and review wherever you listen, because that shit is important. Here is a recent review, which I'm thrilled that we have a new review. Interesting and informative. Did my mom write this? No, Wendy Powell 63 did, and I'm grateful. I recently found this podcast and found it covers various and important topics for women in a relaxed manner. I look forward to new episodes. Thank you. I do try to keep it very relaxed. And remember to follow the podcast on your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. If you can't get enough of me on your phone and in your ears, then you should check out my book, Body Talk, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever good books are sold. This show is produced by Wonder Wheel Media and Madison Higley. Oh, yeah. Oh, and thank you to Cheese and John, who always seem to make noise when we record. You can follow me at Katie Storino on Instagram to keep the conversation going. This podcast is over. Being a woman, chances are high. Wait. What? These are just notes. Sorry. (laughs) I'm Ron Burgundy. Uh...